Hello everyone and welcome to Elemental Podcast, a podcast about anything and everything mental health related. My name is Ella, I'm going to be your host. You can find the podcast on Twitter at Elemental Pod and on Instagram at Elemental Podcast. Today's pilot episode will focus on me. Uh, alarmingly enough, it'll focus on my background. It'll tell you much more about me in detail, just so you can understand where I come from later in the podcast episodes with my perspectives and my own experiences and my own journey. Why am I starting this episode with my own journey? Well, I want to break the taboo about talking about mental health. I think that everyone should be able to share their story about mental health. It's incredibly important to be able to have that conversation openly and clearly with everyone. Also, I want to break the idea that you should be ashamed of your past or ashamed of your mental health history. It's not true. Just because you've recovered and just because you're doing really well now is no reason to be ashamed of who you were previously. Your journey is part of who you are and it informs everything about you. I'm not ashamed of who I was and what I did, despite the mistakes that have been made. So, for those of you who are listening who know me personally, some of this might sound repetitive to you. You probably have heard some of these things before people who are listening who haven't heard these stories, I hope that they are informative and interesting and not too depressing so that you can continue listening without being upset. While there's a lot of amazing things that have happened in my life, a lot of it has been kind of crappy, uh, to put it the kind way. And I guess I want to start with that because it informs a lot of who I am and it informs my opinions about mental health. I just want to do a quick disclaimer before I start. I am not a mental health professional. I'm just a person seeking to help in any way I can. If you're really struggling with mental health problems, please get in touch with your GP, a psychologist or a psychiatrist, friend or family member, just anyone that you can trust to talk to about your own mental health issues. I promise you that getting help is the first step in the right direction. Now, let's get started. To give you a bit of understanding, I was born in Perth in 1994. I was born to a Singaporean mum and a Malaysian dad who met in university while they were in Perth and have been in love ever since. An inspiring story. Um, I have a little sister. Her name is Tash. And I have a dog. And his name is Sirius. And he is 12 weeks old and absolutely adorable. If you want to see pictures go on the Instagram. I promise they are there and they are the best help for anyone having a bad day. When I was five, we moved to Melbourne from Perth and I remember being bullied a lot in primary school, but I think that that's a really common theme for people growing up. There's always going to be a bully. You know, that's just how kids can be. Kids can be cruel. And we all have been there where we've all either been the bully or we were bullied. And I think I've done a bit of both. However, when we moved to Nigeria in 2007, it took a whole new turn. Um, The bullying that happened when I was living in Nigeria, which is in Africa, by the way, the armpit of Africa, in West Africa, The bullying that happened when I was at the American International School of Lagos, and this is not at all the school's fault, by the way. This was totally and utterly personal between me and the people that it happened with. The school has no responsibility over this and they have very little control over what students can do when they're in their own homes. The bullying that happened there was something that I carried with me for a very long time. I carried it with me well into my 
late teens. Uh, it impacted the way that I saw myself and my confidence with making friends and just being who I was in general. I actually became very much ashamed of who I was as a person because I thought that there was a lot wrong with me. Um, when this happened, I was already suffering minor depression and anxiety as a teenager. I think I was about 13 or 14 when it really hit full force. I started to self-harm. I was drinking a lot and I had a lot of eating problems and self-hatred that uh, I carried with me into my later teens. Um, some of the worst things I can remember happening there were um, things like someone telling me that they wouldn't care if I tried to kill myself or someone telling me that I was, you know, a very lesser human being and someone actually going into a friend's house and taking a shirt that I had left there by accident. They took the shirt, they cut it up, they pissed on it, and then they threw it at me. Now, that kind of bullying is just out of this world. And the reason that it happened is because I lived in a compound surrounded by these people. Don't get me wrong. These people have grown into wonderful adults. They are fantastic people and have done a lot with their lives since this. I do not resent them for doing what they did because people change, people grow, people make up for their mistakes. And I got a lot of people apologizing to me in later years for what happened when I was living in Lagos, which really helped me reconcile what had happened. So despite all of that, despite all of the bullying, I am still friends with these people and I have massive respect for who they are now as humans because they have come so far and such a long way. At the time, it had a big impact on my mental health. And when we moved back to Australia in 2010, I had a lot of problems um, adjusting to being back home because I had gone through a lot of trauma living overseas. Um, the one thing that did happen in Nigeria that wasn't related to the bullying was a sexual assault. When I was about 14, some of, well, one of the boys who shall remain unnamed uh, got me ridiculously drunk and assaulted me. And when my parents came looking for me around the compound at three in the morning, because I still hadn't come home, I had no excuse for them. I went downstairs, I was clearly drunk, and I told them, I'm sorry, I can't do anything but apologize. I went to bed and I cried myself to sleep and woke up the next morning with a horrific hangover and the feeling that I was incredibly dirty. Um, for all of you out there who have survived a sexual assault, I have no doubt that you um, can empathize with the feeling that I'm talking about here. But I also want to emphasize that it is never your fault it is never something that you have done. It was not my fault that I consumed that alcohol. It was not my fault that he went on to touch me the way that he did. That being said, I was relieved when we moved back to Melbourne in 2010. I thought that it would be a really good chance for a fresh start. These formative years of being the ages of 12 to 15 can be really hard. They're some of the hardest years that you ever go through in terms of development. It's when everyone's figuring out their hormones. It's when everyone's figuring out what they want to do with their high school selves. And it's when you figure out who your real friends are. When I was um, 15, when we moved back to Melbourne, we started at a school called Cary, which is my favorite school today. It was the favorite school that I ever went to as a kid. And it was where I met some of my lifelong friends and my, my sisters, basically. Um, and 
we had been at Cary for about two weeks when my younger sister was diagnosed with cancer. She was diagnosed with osteosarcoma in her right femur, and the tumour was so big that we could actually see a sizable difference in her legs once we had been told about it. Um, we didn't really have a support system in place at that stage. We hadn't even moved into our own house yet, and... I didn't have many friends at Kerry yet because I was still really nervous and I had a lot of social anxiety about this. Um, I was continuing to self-harm at home in Melbourne. Uh, I was still depressed and I still suffered a lot of anxiety. My sister's diagnosis just kind of reinforced that everything was going downhill, which was really unfortunate. Um, for her, I can't imagine what it was like. It must have been like hearing that your life had just been put on hold while this disease ravaged your body and you had to fight it. And that's exactly what happened. So a week after she was diagnosed, my sister started chemotherapy at the Royal Children's Hospital, which I cannot recommend high enough. And they were just the best. The nurses were wonderful. The doctors were wonderful. Everything was really great um, in terms of as great as it could be when one has cancer. Um, the day that she found out, well, the day after she found out about the diagnosis and when we had talked down and talked about it as a family. Um, I went to school the next day and my homeroom teacher, who was like the, the house leader, um, noticed that I really wasn't myself. She didn't say anything at the time. She thought I might just be tired. Um, later on that day, someone... <laughs> My English teacher, I believe it was, asked me if I was doing okay and it was the first time someone had asked me that that day. I broke down in tears. I just started bawling my eyes out in front of her and I think I really frightened her. She took me to her office and gave me a cup of tea and got my homeroom teacher to come and speak to me. And when I told them what had happened, um, they set up a really fantastic support system for me. So basically the school said, if you need to take a break out of class, just go to the library, read a book, sit down for an hour, just take the time you need to sort yourself out. The teachers will be informed of the situation and we will take care of everything else, which was a really wonderful support system. I cannot thank them enough and I cannot praise the school highly enough for the way that they dealt with the situation that they were presented with. While this was happening, I had increasing depression, anxiety, self-harm, and I started having manic episodes around this age. Um, and I also had some severe eating problems. So I started, um, I guess what you would call an anorexic tendencies rather than anorexia full out because it was just disordered eating as opposed to an eating disorder. There's a very big difference between the two, if that makes sense. Um, during this time, I was dating a wonderful person who was a great support system. And I finally met some friends that I'm still friends with today. They are just wonderful people, like just people in general. Um, However, it didn't really stop the disordered eating. It didn't stop the self-harm. And I still had severe social anxiety. I thought that all my friends were going to start bullying me or that they would leave me because these things were happening or that I had too much baggage to carry around for anyone to want to be with me. Of course, all my friends told me otherwise and they were, their, they were my best support system at the time. They helped me lessen my self-harm. They helped me with dealing with everything that was happening with my sister. And they gave me an escape to to go and, I guess, regain myself while I was away from home. The situation at home wasn't great. 
we moved into our own house, which was wonderful. And we had a really beautiful place in Camberwell in Melbourne. And I still love going by that house just because it's beautiful. But while we were there, my sister was going through chemotherapy. She lost about 10% of her body weight. She lost her hair, which was so heartbreaking. I remember the day that she lost all of her hair. It just fell out in a big clump. And I came home and I went to the bathroom that evening and it almost scared the hell out of me because there was this big lump of hair sitting on the counter and I thought for the life of me it was a giant spider until I turned the light on. And when I told my sister that, she laughed. But I could see the heartbreak in her eyes. Her hair was like her prized possession. She had the most amazing, curly, wavy hair and she used to take time out of her day, especially before school, to go and actually wash her hair in the morning and then sit with it splayed out over the top of the couch while she slept sitting up so that it would dry perfectly into ringlets and (laughs) that's one of the things I still remember about her to this day but she was heartbroken when she lost her hair and she didn't let me see her bald for a very long time she always wore a beanie around me she just didn't have the confidence and I always did my best to try and reinforce with her how beautiful I still thought she was because she was she was absolutely stunning as a human being Moving on from this, or not really moving on, I guess the next stage of what happened is my sister had a recurrence of cancer in her spine. So uh, at this point, she had had two major surgeries. She'd had a major surgery to remove the tumor that was in her right femur. Her entire right femur, knee socket and hip socket were removed and replaced with, uh, with metal alloy bones. I think it's only the second or third time they've done that surgery in the Southern Hemisphere. It was a major eight-hour surgery. I had a chemistry exam that day, which I failed, to no one's surprise. Um, And my parents spent that whole day in the hospital waiting for her. Um, I saw her only two days after the surgery. I didn't want to see her immediately after because she was in so much pain that I don't think it would have served either of us to hang out and talk the way that we wanted to. I saw her two days after. She was still in an immense amount of pain, but she was really happy to see me. And she was kind of a bit more herself, if not a little snappy, because she was in so much pain. Again, 100% understandable. She was smashing that morphine button as hard as she could whenever it lit up. Um, Lord knows how much pain it would be to have those those major kind of surgeries. She'd also had a surgery to remove a tumour from her lung, so she lost about 30% of her right lung, as far as I remember. Later on in 2011, there was a recurrence of the cancer in her spine, in her L3 lumbar vertebrae, so it's in her lower back, and it was causing spasms of pain and numbness between in, her, in both her legs. So the one leg that had the surgery in it was fine, but the other leg was getting jabs of pain, and that was the problem. If it had been in the other leg, then it would have been like, oh, okay, it's just related to the surgery. When they first found the tumour, they thought that it was going to be inoperable. However, due to some miracle and a wonderful surgeon, they were able to operate on it and remove that vertebrae and replace it with, I guess, what is called a bracket. It's like a little metal box that replaces the vertebrae. So she had that surgery. I remember going to see her in hospital afterwards, and she was pale as a ghost and on an oxygen tank. When I asked what happened, she said that they gave her so much morphine, she forgot to breathe. (laughs) Literally in those words. And, uh, yeah, she had a pretty tough recovery from that surgery. She had a back brace for a really long time. And because her leg still wasn't fully recovered, she wasn't able to walk very well. So she had to get a hospital bed put into the house in Camberwell so that she could 
properly get out of bed and all that kind of thing because the normal bed was just too hard on her back. She couldn't sit up. Um, during this time and just after the recurrence of cancer in her spine, I had a suicide attempt. I tried to kill myself. I took about 48 painkillers without even really thinking about it. And I just remember thinking I've not taken enough when I was doing this. I slept for 16 hours afterwards, but I didn't die and I was sick. I had a really sore stomach the day after. Please understand that if you are struggling with suicide, please reach out to someone. Please call Suicide Helpline. Do something. Because, because losing someone that way is really heartbreaking. Losing anyone anyway is heartbreaking. So I urge you, if you are listening to this and this has triggered you in any way, please reach out for help. Um, that being said, this suicide attempt wasn't enough for me to do any lasting damage on myself, which I'm eternally grateful for. But the problem was the mentality behind it. And the fact that I had attempted such a thing when my family was in such dire need really spoke volumes about my own mental state at this time. So I was still self-harming really badly. I had disordered eating. And at this stage, I think I'd lost about five kilos in the space of about two months. Um, there was a lot of tension at home. Uh, while my sister was sick and while I was dealing with my own issues, I think I became a little bit self-centered during this time because I felt like I was out of control of my life. And my psychologist and I had talked about this in depth, but when I was that age, the eating disorder, sorry, the disordered eating came about as a result of me not having enough control over what was happening in my life. So I felt that it was the only thing I could control. And that really does make sense to me. I was still having a lot of anxiety and depression. I hadn't really talked to my parents about this yet. I talked to my sister about it, but not that much because I didn't want to give her any more burdens than she already had. She already had so much going on with herself. I can't imagine. Um, and it was funny, but well, not really funny. It was ironic that her psychologist who came to the house to visit her ended up being my psychologist for a number of years afterwards because I didn't ever have to explain to her the Tash situation, which was, which was a blessing because I didn't want to have to describe it again and again to find the right professional. So I got very, very lucky in terms of finding a professional person to help me that way. While this happened, this lasted a few months with me just being me, I guess, being depressed and being anxious and just going through the motions and going through school. And while my sister finished off her chemotherapy and then, and then came the terminal diagnosis. I think it was the beginning of 2012. And my dad came home from the hospital. They'd gone in for a scan and we'd all been crossing our fingers and toes, just hoping that it would be fine. When my dad came home before my mum and sister, because my mum and sister were in an ambulance, because that's the only way my sister could be transported at that stage, um, my dad came home and he had been crying. And he told me that he wasn't going to tell me that Tash wanted to speak to me herself. Now, to me, that was always a bad sign, because she had been the one to tell me that she had cancer in the first place, and she had been the one to tell me that it had come back in her spine. She had always been the one to want to tell me that. 
because we were very close, incredibly close. We were one year apart and, you know, we'd gone and done amazing things together in Nigeria and all those experiences had brought us closer, despite the fact that we still fought occasionally like cats and dogs. Well, my dad came home and he'd been crying. And when the ambulance turned up with my sister and my mum, I waited for them to put her in her bed and for her to be rested before I went down and spoke to her. She, she called me in. And I went down and she looked at me and she just said, it's come back. But this time there are six new tumours. And they say that I'm terminal, that I'm stage four. And I remember trying so hard not to cry in front of her because I wanted to be her big sister. I wanted to be strong. I wanted to show her that that there was nothing to fear, despite the fact that this was the worst thing that could happen. After she told me, I said that I needed a moment, and she did too. I could see that she was just distraught. I mean, she was she was 16 years old, and she'd just been told that her life was going to end within a year. It's one of the most heartbreaking things to hear when someone that young with so much potential is lost. She was incredibly intelligent. She was very smart. She wanted to be a biochemist so that she could solve so that she could solve <laughs> the world's energy crisis. And I totally 100% believe that she would have been able to achieve such a thing. After this, we did our best to try and make sure that we got to experience everything we could before she died. I was still going through a lot of my own personal issues. I was obsessively exercising. I dropped down to 48 kilograms, which for my height was extremely underweight. Um, and I was also addicted to Tumblr. Tumblr became a very dangerous place for me. For those of you who don't know, there is a huge pro-eating disorder community on Tumblr, which is incredibly dangerous once you get into it. And I was deep inside that, th- that thing. It's full of people who encourage eating disorders and disordered eating practices, um, who challenge each other to fastings and who create diet plans that are based off 100 calorie meals. Um, it was incredibly dangerous. And I was really deep into that. It was really bad for me. And it took me getting away from that to really fully recover from having disordered eating. At this stage, I'd also um, increased my self-harm and I was now self-harming with razors. So it was a very different experience to what I'd been doing previously, which was just with scissors. And uh, now it was a really serious problem. We had Christmas in July that year because my sister wasn't going to make it to December. So we had Christmas in July. We had our family from London, who we love, come down and spend time with us, which was awesome. We did so many things together. And my cousin Ben and Tash got to spend time together, which was really important because they was they were very close. They were very much into the same kind of things. He's a mathematician and she was in love with physics and all this kind of stuff. They loved science together. And that was very much the thing that they bonded over. So I was really glad that they got to spend time together like that. And I'm glad that we got to do Christmas with her. And she got to dress up in this beautiful red dress and wear these beautiful sparkly shoes and just enjoy herself with all the loved ones around her, even if it was just for a short while. 
She felt nauseous halfway through the night and had to go lie down, but that was fine. We all went and lay in bed with her, myself and uh, her best friend Clem and our cousin and so many other family friends who were there that night. It was really wonderful. After Christmas in July, things kind of just progressively got worse. Um, I got worse in terms of my eating disorder. I basically wasn't eating at this stage and I was really stressed from year 12 exams coming up and preparing for all of this in amongst everything that was happening at home. We were now in palliative care um, with a doctor called Bronwyn, who we're still in touch with today, who is a really wonderful human being. And she did a lot for my sister that I really wish I could thank her for more. Um, and we were just basically making sure that my sister was comfortable at home. We didn't want her to pass away in a hospital we wanted her to be at home surrounded by people that love her and know that she's safe and that she's not somewhere far and she's with us and we will always be standing around her no matter what. In September, on the 4th of September, um, my boyfriend at the time and his mum picked me up from school because my mum had told me that I needed to come home as soon as possible. So they picked me up from school instead of me taking the train and I got home and everyone was there and my mum said that the palliative care doctor had just, oh, sorry, one of the other doctors had just come and said that we had less than 24 hours. At this point, I hadn't spoken to my sister for two days because the times that I'd seen her, she'd just been sleeping. She was mostly awake in the late night and in the time that I was at school and then she was sleeping probably about 16 hours to 18 hours a day um, because her body was shutting down. I got home and my boyfriend and his mum came in and they realised what was happening and I just pretended that everything was fine. I was chirpy and chipper and I was trying to be happy and I went up to my sister and even though she couldn't hear me, or I hope she heard me and I think she did, but even though she wasn't fully conscious, I went up to her and I gave her a kiss like I always did and I whispered in her ear that I was home and that I loved her and that I was going to go take the dog to the vet because that was what I needed to do that afternoon. So I went and took Emmett, who was our dog at the time. I went and picked him up and I was just stepping out the door when I heard my mum yell me, yell my name. I ran back into the room and my parents are just kneeling at her bedside and my mum just looks up at me and she says she's not breathing. The first thing I do is I race to my sister's side, I pick up her wrist and I try and find a pulse but there isn't one. And the terror that seized me at that moment was, was very intense. I felt everything just shrink away and I ran. I ran upstairs to my room and I hid in my wardrobe, my walk-in robe area, because that was where I felt safe. I was hyperventilating, I was panicking and I heard my boyfriend call my name and he followed me upstairs and he goes, what is it? What's wrong? And I go, I can't find a pulse. She's not breathing. What do I do? And bless him, he knew that the only way to get me to calm down was to remind me that other people needed me at the time. And he was right. He said, I'm so sorry, but your parents need you. You need to go back downstairs. They need you. And just in that instant, I managed to collect myself. I went back downstairs. I was in tears and just completely broken. But I went downstairs and I 
wiped my tears away, and I comforted my parents. And I sat by my sister's bed for quite a number of hours. While this happened, people came in and out of the house. A lot of friends and family came over to mourn with us and to grieve with us and to say goodbye to Tash. Her body was still there, but it wasn't her to me. And after a while, I didn't want to sit next to her anymore because it just felt foreign. Whatever spirit my sister had had left to that shell. And it, I just couldn't feel her anymore. So I went upstairs and I didn't go downstairs again until they came to take her away the next morning, in which case I helped them. I helped them take her away and made them make sure that they looked after her, that they would treat her with the respect and dignity she deserves. I'm sorry, I'm fumbling my words. I know you can hear it. It's just uh, this is one of the hardest things to talk about for this part. Um, we had the herb. So we had her body taken away. We had family and friends over at the time. Everyone came over. I made tea. I didn't cry in front of every, anyone because I was in shock. I made tea for everyone. I looked after everyone else. I smiled as I played with my dog. I only cried when I was by myself, when I was in my room, when no one was listening, because that's when I felt safest expressing myself like that. I did self-harm that night, and it didn't relieve anything for the first time ever. I didn't feel anything different, because it was grief. It was grief that I was dealing with, not my usual bout of depression or anxiety. I want to reiterate that when she did pass away, when she did, <laughs> I'm sorry, this is the first time I'm doing a podcast and I'm tripping over my words. When she did pass away, I want to reiterate how thankful I am for my boyfriend at the time, for my friends, for my family, for everyone who was there, because I wouldn't have been able to make it without them. Every single one of them made a difference. Every single one of them brought something different to me that made dealing with it just a little bit easier. So I'm very grateful for that. I managed to get through the memorial and the funeral without crying. At the memorial, I made a speech. I talked about her teddy bear, Conrad, who still sits on my bed, and how he had travelled the world with us and how amazing my sister was, how smart. And how beautiful. We played the video that a group of friends made for her. Um, they were all friends from Lagos. And they actually went through and took the time to make a video for my sister. Just full of beautiful, loving memories. And just encouragement and motivation. And I loved watching it so much. I sobbed watching that video. And I know how much work went into it. And they actually went through and they got into touch with people who had moved all over the world by this stage. And it actually got them just to send in little clips saying really nice things about my sister or things that they remembered or things that they wished for her. And it was really wonderful, really wonderful to be able to see that. We played that at the memorial and it, it just reminded me again how wonderful some people can be and how good people can be. After the memorial, which was held at my school, um, I went and had lunch with my friends. 
And it was the first time that I was eating normally in over a year and a half. I actually started eating normally again and the disordered eating stopped because my body went into shock after what happened with my sister. And I was just dealing with each moment as it came because I wasn't able to process everything. It was just too much. And I just started eating three times a day again and sleeping normally because that was how my body was surviving. Um, after I finished exams, in which I did very well, by the way, um, I had special consideration for the exams, but I didn't end up needing it. I got into the course that I wanted to at University of Melbourne, and I did that all on my own. And the reason that I fought so hard to do so well on my exams is because it was so important to my sister. She never got a chance to finish her education, but she loved learning and she loved being at school and being surrounded by education and being surrounded by her friends and all of that I made sure to never take advantage of. So I pushed myself to do really well and I tried to live every single moment with her in mind, remembering that she hadn't had the chance, so I needed to do it doubly for the both of us. I went to schoolies like all Australian kids do. I had an amazing week away with my friends and with, you know, with way too much alcohol and junk food, but it was so much fun. And I remember thinking that this is what I should be doing. This is what I should be doing for her, that I should be living this way and I should be living my best life because she would be absolutely bloody furious with me if I wasn't. <laughs> when I started uni, I was living on campus. I lived on campus um, at the University of Melbourne in one of the colleges there. And it was really great. It was really great being surrounded by a whole bunch of like-minded people who were really driven to do their education and to get their degrees, but also who were really social, who were really fun, came from all different backgrounds and different walks of life. Um, a lot of them had had parents who'd gone to the college and a lot of them had had brothers and sisters who'd been there. Or some of them, like me, were the first in their family to go. The reason that I got into the college is because my um, school principal had previously gone to Ormond College and he knew some people there. He wrote a letter, a shiny recommendation letter for me to get into that college. And that's why I got in, which is one of the greatest things ever. He was he was a champ. Philip Gritzner, if you ever listen to this, you were a wonderful principal and I thank you every day for what you did, especially the two giant chocolate hags frogs you gave to me and my friends while they were ditching class to come and see me the day after my sister passed away. That is something I will never forget and your kindness was incredible. Um, during this time while I was living at college, however, I had a mental collapse. I had, um, I was severely self-harming. I actually had to go and get bandaged up by the nurse at college because I'd done such bad damage to myself, I couldn't deal with it myself. Um, I was having regular anxiety attacks and manic attacks, um, and I actually had a third suicide, uh, sorry, not a third, a second suicide attempt. Um, my dad came in and found me um, just basically shaking, sobbing, and I had blood all over me, but I tried to sever an artery. He bandaged my wounds, cleaned me up, and I... Every day I think about the impact that that would have had on him and I can't imagine what it would be like finding your child like that. I'm eternally grateful for the way that he dealt with it, the way that he speaks to me to this day about my mental health and the way that he's been there to support me. After this, 
I started going back to my psychologist more frequently. I was seeing a psychiatrist at this stage, so I'd also started on medication to help deal with the mania and everything because it was becoming so intense that I physically couldn't deal with it. And I was just exhausted all the time. I was losing my focus on my degree and I needed to bring myself back. So I actually fought very hard for my own mental health at this stage and I'm very proud of the fact that I survived it. My parents were living overseas as well. So my main source of support wasn't exactly present all the time. I saw them all the time and I spoke to them a lot, but I was having a lot of problems and I was also dating someone at the time, but it was still not changing the issues that I was facing. So I needed professional help, which is what I went and got. I'm very proud of myself to this day for actually going out and asking for help. I was told at one point in college that I would be kicked out And bear in mind, this is the day before an exam. I'm studying in the library. I get a call from one of the counsellors. He's the one who came and spoke to me after I had to be bandaged up by the nurse because they're obviously obliged to because I'm in their care while I'm at the college. When he spoke to me, he sat me down with one of the other counsellors there and they basically said that I'd be kicked out of, um, of the college if I didn't give them my psychiatrist information. I had a lot of mistrust of the college counsellors after that. Um, I actually called my therapist, my psychologist after this to tell them what had happened. And I was like, I can't believe this. Like, this is no way to deal with it. It caused me to fail the exam the next day. I was really anxious. I didn't sleep that night. Um, I gave them the psychiatrist information and eventually the problem went away. But it still, uh, to this day, was not the greatest way of coping with it. Don't get me wrong. The college that I lived at was wonderful. And I had a lot of support systems other than the councils there. But it just wasn't the right way to go about dealing with it. Anyway, I was still having quite bad panic attacks and mania. So I increased the, we increased the dose of my medication. Um, and I kind of just managed to scrape through 2013 with everything still in place, with my head still, still screwed on right and somehow not being hospitalised. In 2014, I started cheerleading with the University of Melbourne and it was the beginning of healing for me. That is where I identify the most positive swing in my mental health was starting cheer. Something that I never thought I'd ever see myself doing was being on a stage and throwing people in the air and wearing a bow and wearing a really short skirt and having a fake tan and wearing a full face of makeup. These are things that I never thought I would do with my life. And yet there I was doing it and loving it. One of my friends, one of my best friends, Rosie, is the one who suggested that I go and do cheerleading in the first place because she'd done it with University of Melbourne and she had loved it. When I went and did it, I found that I was in a community of people who were incredibly supportive, who were incredibly caring and who were really there for each other. Not only that, but the increased physical activity and the cooperative nature of cheerleading meant that I was always challenged And I was always supported and I was always active in some way. And that helped immensely. Being in that community and having a competition to work towards and working together with a group of people that were like that was so awesome. Cheerleading is an underrated sport in Australia. I think it's one of the greatest things that you could ever do. And I'm so glad it's growing. So I did cheer for two years and I loved it. And I made some really amazing friends there and I... I'm 
really glad that I had the opportunity to go and do this. And so at University of Melbourne Cheerleading Club, I can't thank you enough for what you did. Um, we won a nationals, you know. I got to say that I had won a national competition in cheerleading um, with the university, and it was really cool. And though I never advanced further than beginner level, level one and two, I still loved being at that level. And it really helped with my mental health. It made me feel like I was working towards something. It made me feel that I was doing something that had a sense of community and a sense of enjoyment and a sense of real thrill to it because you only get two and a half minutes on that stage you got to make every second of it count. And having that challenge really brought me out of my shell and I felt really, really strong doing cheer. While I was doing cheerleading, I decided to go and do a personal training course to get certified as a personal trainer. I went and did that and it was also really amazing. Um, I learned a lot about myself during this time. I got dumped during this time and... I was surrounded by a small group of really close-knit people that I saw three times a week and I really loved hanging out with them and I got to be one of the class leaders. So I had all of these experiences tying me together. But it kind of unraveled a little bit after a breakup happened at the end of 2015. So in December of 2015, um, my boyfriend had two and a half years broke up with me. And... I really struggled to deal with it because all through my late teen years, I'd been in relationships. So the relationship previous to this one was also two and a half years. Then I'd had about six or seven months where I was single in my first year of uni. And then I was in another relationship. So I hadn't really figured out who I was as an adult yet. And I was 21 at this stage. Um, the following two years after that saw a little bit of a mental relapse. I ended up self-harming again much worse than before. And I had maybe one or two manic episodes in, in between there. While I was dealing with all of this, I actually started to find myself. I made a lot of mistakes. I lost friends. I made friends. But I also discovered how to be happy with who I am as a person and to never be apologetic about who I am and how I feel about things. I learned not to compromise. And that was so important for me. Those two years of being independent, of being someone who was striving towards one particular goal, which was to just be myself, was something that I really needed in order to better become who I am today. I took two years to get myself together. The breakup was really messy. So I was really all over the place. I've been clean of self-harm for about three years now. So it's going really well. <laughs> um, I'm a lot better. But at the time, I thought I was in a really big hole. And when I was finishing my degree in 2016, I felt like I was in a ditch that I couldn't crawl myself out of. I was wrong. I managed to get out of it. Because at the end of the day, I realized, you know what? I faced worse things than this. I got through the fact that my sister passed away, mostly, unscathed. Um, and I, I had just fought harder battles. And it just wasn't worth giving up for this one little thing. So I clawed myself out of the hole again. I finished my degree. I graduated from the University of Melbourne with a Bachelor of Arts and a Diploma of Languages in Spanish and then I got a job 
I worked a full-time job all of 2017. I worked with one of my uncles at his commercial real estate business as a project manager. And it was during this time that I had my first taste of what it was like to live as a proper adult. And it was here that I really found myself. I started feeling more comfortable in my own skin. I felt confident in my skills. And I started to figure out what I wanted to do next. Because I figured out that I didn't actually want to be a project manager for a career. And so I decided to go back and study. I went back and this year I started doing my master's at RMIT in graphic design because that's what I decided I loved. I love art. I love designing. If you look at the elemental logo, I did that. It's something that I'm incredibly passionate about and I love art. So that's what I want to do my career in because why not do something that you love? Every single day that I've been studying, I've done it with my sister in mind because I know that she would have been like, why aren't you doing the thing that you love most? Because then you don't work a day in your life. And that's exactly what she wanted to do. She didn't want to work a day in her life. She would work for her degree. Don't get me wrong. She would work hard. But she would love it. She would love every single second of it. And that's exactly what I wanted to do. During this year that I was working as a project manager, so last year, I discovered Twitch streaming and I discovered PC video games. I bought myself a gaming con- like a gaming PC. I spent my first paycheck that I got from my job as project manager on a gaming rig and I love it. I still have it to this day and Twitch streaming was something that I found and loved. I started up a Twitch channel under the name of Kangaroozoo1 and through that channel I made so many friends and so many connections. I never thought it was even possible to meet this many people. A game called Friday the 13th was really a breakthrough for me because it was in this game that I was able to role play with a lot of different people and a lot of people that I had actually watched on Twitch and who I was really big fans of. People like Minilab, people like Omrecker. If you don't know them, you should go look them up. Angerbeard was one, Momo. I met so many different people and they became really good friends. And then through this, I met people in Twitch Australia and people who were other Australian streamers. And then I went to TwitchCon in 2017 in Los Angeles and it was really eye-opening to see just how many people loved this community. This was a really big step for my mental health and it was me figuring out what I did for me, you know. It was something that I did for myself because I loved it and it was one of the first things I'd ever done for myself because I loved it. It was an indulgence and it was a hobby and I wouldn't trade it for the world. I went to Los Angeles with a friend and I spent two and a half weeks there. I got to meet up with everyone that I'd been playing with and people who I'd watched on YouTube for years, who I was absolutely starstruck to meet. People like I Am Wildcat, Cryos Gaming, Smitty, 407, um, oh my God, so many more. Anthony Kong fan, Mini Lad. It was just incredible. You're probably wondering what all of this has to do with mental health. Well, this is probably the stage where I felt happiest last year, where I was most comfortable in my skin. I had stopped self-harming. I felt confident in who I was, and I felt like I was actually starting to find who I was, both mentally and physically. I was still covered in scars, and I still am to this day, but they're not a source of shame. They're a defining feature of who I am. They're a defining feature of my past. But that's okay. 
that's okay. I get people who stare at my arm and who go, what happened to you? And I tell them because I've come out of it stronger than ever before. So TwitchCon and Twitch and video games became the, the thing that I went to when I was feeling down. And it became my new coping mechanism. And that is something amazing. The fact that I'd gone out and found something like this that could give me the support that I needed from people all over the world was incredible. While I was working last year, I met a boy. It was probably just, it was just before I went to Los Angeles to go to TwitchCon. I met a boy and I absolutely fell head over heels in love with him. On New Year's Eve of this year, or last year, is that right? The 31st of December of 2017, if we're being specific, just at midnight, he told me that he was in love with me. We'd been together for about two or three months at that stage, and it was the most romantic thing anyone has ever done for me. He did things for me that I never thought people did in normal, real life, you know? When I had a stressful day at work, I came back to his house, and he made me close my eyes and wait in the living room. And then when I came into his bedroom, there were candles everywhere and he set up a massage for me because I'd had a bad day at work. This was the kind of person he was. He was incredibly generous. He was incredibly loving. And he and I were together for about nine months. Now, it sounds like a short relationship compared to the other ones. But it was the one that burned brightest and it was the one where I fell hardest, if that makes sense. And I think as you get older, that kind of happens more frequently because... As you get older, you invest more because you're like, well, I guess time is moving on. So I guess I should probably (laughs) think about a future with this person. But this is the first time I never thought about a future with anyone. We fell crazily in love. We spent, I think for the first two or three months of this year, we didn't have a day where we weren't together. That's how intense the relationship was. And when it went bad, it went bad really fast and really hard. Despite the fact that he has been probably the best relationship I've ever been in, he was also the hardest. Um, He had his own problems, which I'm not going to delve into because that's not what this is about. But then I started losing my confidence because of what was happening in a relationship. I started losing the sense of who I was that I had found when I met him. I started questioning everything I was doing and I just really wasn't feeling like myself anymore when we broke up in July it was the day before I went to Hawaii with my two best friends Rosie and Poppy and my mum and dad and I just felt lost I just felt lost and I realized at the time that I'd become so reliant on this person that I had forgotten who I was as an independent person and that was really dangerous the the relationship had been so all-consuming that I'd lost that sense of self that I had fought so hard to find before I'd met him. So what does this have to do with my mental health? Well, after we broke up, I had a big crash. I was really depressed, but I didn't self-harm. I knew that I was coping with this relationship better than I had ever coped with any other breakup. I talked to my friends about it. I actually opened up and I talked to my friends and family. I openly cried in front of people for the first time ever. And just let it out. And it was so liberating to be able to just express how I was feeling in this relationship and how I was feeling now that he will never talk to me again. 
he and I haven't spoken since he made it very clear that he doesn't want to hear from me. And that's, that's his, that's his decision. And that's okay. The first time I heard it, I definitely was not okay with it. And I was bloody furious. But given the time that has passed, it's okay. Some people come into your life to teach you how to let go better. And I think that's exactly what he was. He was something that was fire and fury and just hot and fast and just everything, you know, like a tornado that just ripped through momentarily and then was gone. (laughs) The best tornado. Don't get me wrong. He was a wonderful human being. But all human beings have their flaws and he definitely had his. At the end of the day, I'm glad that we ended where we did for many reasons. And I have since figured myself out a bit. So let me give you an update on where things stand now. This week, well, last week, I started with a personal trainer. I'm losing the weight that I gained in my depressive episode after the breakup because I ate. I comfort ate for the first time in my life. I was comfort eating. I put on a lot of weight. I'm going to lose that weight. I'm teaching myself mindfulness and I'm trying to be grateful for something every day. We have a puppo. We got a puppo two weeks ago. His name is Sirius and he is my son and currently being a very naughty boy. He is the reason that I smile all of the day. And I'm really glad that I have him and that we have another dog in the house. I am trying to make sure that all my friends know that I'm eternally grateful for them and for seeing me through the last couple of months, which have been really hard. And I don't discount the fact that this breakup was difficult, ever, because despite the challenges that I have faced before, it doesn't change how much something hurts in the present. And I think that's something that everyone should be aware of. Never discount your efforts in the present for something that seems lesser than your past. I started this podcast because I wanted to show others that even though the world can be really horrible and cruel and awful at times, that there is always more in the future than you could ever possibly know. When I was 18, I never thought that I would fall in love with someone the way that I fell in love with my last ex-boyfriend. I never thought that love would be like that or that was a fantasy. I thought in my late teens that I wouldn't survive. I thought that I would be dead by the time I reached my early 20s. But here I am. I'm 24 and I'm mentally stronger than ever. I start this podcast always thinking of my sister and always thinking of the journey that I have had and that my family has had and that my friends have had to get to the point where they are today, to battle it out and be stronger for it. She's with me in every single moment. And so are the memories of everyone else, of the people who I've loved and lost, the experiences that I have had, the people that I have disliked and liked and befriended and not befriended. It all contributes to your mental health. People have a large influence over who you become as a person and who you are mentally and physically. I started this podcast because mental health should be something that we should be able to talk about as openly in conversation as I've just told you about my past. It should be that easy. And unfortunately, we live in a world where that stigma is still around. So starting with this episode, I hope that we can end it together.
Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this. I really hope my rambling wasn't that bad. And I hope that you got something out of hearing this. What to expect in the next episode? More detail about mental health and cancer. We will focus on what it's like as a patient and a survivor, and also as a family member, something going through cancer, living with guilt, and how time makes things easier, but they never truly go away. We will talk about all of those topics and more in the Elemental Podcast next week. Please follow us on Instagram at Elemental Podcast and on Twitter at Elemental Pod. If you have any questions or topics that you would like to discuss, please email elementalpodcast at gmail.com. That is E-L-L-A-M-E-N-T-A-L podcast at gmail.com. I hope you all have a wonderful, safe and loving week. And make sure to take a moment today to be grateful for just one thing. For me, I'm grateful for my dog who's currently destroying his bed. All my love. See you later.